So, we are diversifying our guests on the channel. And this is our first guest who rose to the top of football. In the England team, it is Alan Tomo Thompson here. From Newcastle, from Wall's End. So, his life story does actually overlap with some of the characters we have mentioned on the channel who there's been huge interest in their stories. I'm talking Viv Graham, Lee Duffy, and we're going to be talking about Alan's battles over the years, psychologically, hardships he went through, and how it must affect you to rise up, to go to that top level of football and look out and, you know, see all of those fans and have all this adulation and people trying to be your friend and... I've spoken to other people about how they deal with that and people deal with it in various ways because it can lead to mental, mental instability, alcohol abuse, drugs, burnout, and there are all kinds of consequences. And I just want to give a huge shout out to Jamie Boyle because he has hooked this interview up. He's hooked many interviews up. I'm going to put a link to his channel in the description, War Cry Publishing. And Tomo's book might be published by the time we get this interview out the link to that will be in the description box what's the name of the book tomo it's a geordie boy a geordie uh, boy a geordie boy being spelled b-h-o-y which is the the uh, irish celtic connection right mm -hmm. okay we're gonna, we're gonna get to that then and um i've teased the audience with this stuff now about viv graham so before we get to your life story let's just have a look at how you ended up in a relationship with Graham. What was your friendship there? Um, we had a mutual friend, a guy called Rob Armstrong. And um, so we used to see Viv lived in the same part of um, Wall's End as myself. So we'd often see him out and about. I'd be driving me little Metro first car and he'd be flying past in his Sierra Cosworth and what have you. But uh, no, I got to know him extremely well. What did he look years. like? Um, not particularly tall, but absolute beast of a man in terms of physical you know probably eight percent body fat you know forearms the size of my thighs and stuff like that so but um never acted like a hard man didn't come across as a hard man when we were in his company they wouldn't allow you to put your hand in your pocket and buy a drink um he really used to look after us young boys who were coming through the ranks and just breaking into the first team at newcastle united he really kept an eye out for us and um i was with him Christmas Eve, um, the week exactly to the week before he before he got hit outside the same pub he got hit at. So we were drinking in there and had a few drinks and not too much because I was driving back down to Bolton. I was playing for Bolton Wanderers at the time. So um, the next morning, so had a few drinks and as I said, he wouldn't let you put your hand in your pocket and he looked after us and good crack. Loved the laugh, loved the game of pool um, and just someone it was good to be around. Um, I didn't see you be around him at times when he was doing other bits and bobs, you know, throwing doorman around and stuff like that. But did um, you, did, Could you sense the dangerous side of him? Um, yeah, I did. One day I was in a pub just up the street and a couple of kids come in with um, with a crowbar each and he said, well, listen, we can't do it in the pub. Can we go in the back garden? And Viv being Viv, always had jeans on, always had a nice, crisp, clean shirt on. And he went outside for a couple of minutes and come back in on his own. 
he had a bit of blood on his shirt and what have you, but he just took care of the two young kids outside, but didn't want anyone to see it. He said, come on, let's go out the back of the, the anchor. The pub was in Walls End High Street at the time. So you knew what he was capable of, but um, he, he, he didn't flaunt it, if you know what I mean. And what were the rumours of his enemies that ultimately ended with his dem demise? Um, well, there's been lots of suggestions from different families in the northeast. Um, then there's the stories of Lee Duffy coming up to the to um, Newcastle looking for him, and um, in the big market, uh, just walking into a pub in his vest and shorts, looking for Viv, and where is he? Type of thing. So <laughs> he was a bit brassly Duffy to do that, and he was a young boy apparently at the time. So um, I don't think him and Viv ever got it on, but it would have been interesting had they had they had done. And did you recently visit Lee Duffy's grave? Yeah, I was. I moved into Jamie Boyle, who's doing doing my book. I moved into his house for a week with him, um, which was intense. You know, talking about my life from being a young boy in Walls End to the present day, and uh, he took me to some of the the places where certain incidents happened with Lee Duffy and, and to his grave, which was um, quite impressive, really. When you think of the full town of Middlesbrough come to a standstill on the day when he when he eventually got buried, yeah. I mean, the stories here about Lee Duffy just blow my mind. What's the craziest story you've ever heard about Lee Duffy? Um, I think it was probably the one when he, he got a taxi up in Newcastle with his mate and just walked into the pub in the, in the big market and the doorman wouldn't let him in and he just, apparently about four or five of them, he just threw them around like they were ragdolls on his own type of thing, which, you know, for a young lad at the time, probably about 24, 25, so I believe, to do that to, to some heavy-duty doorman in Newcastle is a bit heavy going, you know. Are these are professional, like, hard men. Yeah, yeah, these apparently they are, yeah. And <laughs> he, just, he just made them look like puppets, you know. Bloody so, yeah, hell. Which is pretty scary, isn't it, you know. Yeah, To, to yeah. have the audacity to do that. <laughs> and it wasn't like he had ten men behind him. Apparently it was him and just his mate, so yeah. fair play to him. So Walls End, then, how far away was that from where Viv Graham and Lee Duffy grew up? Lee Duffy was probably about 40 minutes away in Middlesbrough, but mm. Walls End, um, that was that was the Queen's Head, was in Walls End High Street where, where Viv eventually got shot on, on the New Year's Eve. So um, that was where I grew up, yeah. And when did you discover this talent for football? I just think it was from a really young age. I grew up in a council estate, like many many people who go on to, to be successful footballers do, and uh, it was that was our release getting a football, getting out on the streets, getting on the school fields and, and just kicking a ball around until he got called in when it went dark. Mm. And, like, when you're playing with your mates then, did your skill, what, what period of your life did your skill start to stand out? I think it was probably about six or seven. You start when you were thinking, six or seven? Yeah, I think, you know, <laughs> you, you're at school and you end up playing for the, the school team who are nine, ten-year-olds and you're six or seven, you know. it's That's, yeah. that's when you know you your PE teacher's giving you the heads up, you wants you to play for really? a school team, and it's like, hold on a minute, I've never played for a team in my life, but... How does that feel then at that age? Because it, the difference in age is so much between six, seven, eight, nine, you know. Yeah. How, is that, how did that feel to you? I think it, it gives you a buzz, and I think that buzz doesn't leave you. It, it even takes it on later in life <laughs> when you eventually break through to play in front of big crowds and stuff like that. It was the same kind of buzz when I played the first ever game for my school team when I was six or seven year old, you know. So that kind of went through life, d demanding that buzz from, from playing football. So you hear about people giving advice to young people, like, you know, if you've got these um, skills, sports skills, make sure you get an education as well. Because if that doesn't pan out, what are you going to fall back on? So 
Did you have a balanced education, or were you all sports? I was. I was all sports, really. Have you seen on a scale of one to ten how tried it, how hard did you try it at your schoolwork? Um, from a scale of one to ten, I'd probably say about five. And have you said on a scale of one to ten, what did you try put into your sport? It would be a ten. So, um, if I could say to people now, I'd say flip it round. You know, do get your schoolwork ten out of ten, and and find time to try and get your sport ten out of ten. But um, that's what I'd done to my three kids. You know, education was imperative, just because. Sport, you're coming to an end 34, 35 when I finished and you've got a long time to go to get through the rest of your life and um, I think if you've got an education and it's a bonus and I think without that, it's hard work. So what about subjects in school then? Did any of them interest you at all? Yeah, I love pottery. Pottery? Yeah, I love pottery. <laughs> but, but, but you can, you know, people are always going to need pots and pans yeah. and plates <laughs> and, and cutlery and stuff. So um, no, I was, I was well into that. So I've half thought about getting myself a wheel and a little kiln and get, get, get back at it. So it's interesting then, you picked a physical activity, didn't you? Yeah. Pottery, and mm -hmm. football. Academically then, was there any subjects that interested you or did you, did, were you not? Were you yeah, like, like geography. geography. Um, yeah, but if there, was, if there was a subject that I couldn't get my head around, I don't know, French. And I didn't, French, and, yeah. I, and I didn't turn up at the lesson. The French teacher knew I'd be in the pottery class, so <laughs> they always knew where to find us, you know. Because yeah. I'd, go and, I'd go and see Mister Ken's do some pottery while instead of French. But um, <laughs> no, it was, it was interesting times. But uh, I did enjoy school. I did enjoy it, but I enjoyed the bell going at the end of school to for the after school activities, whether it be football or uh, rugby or cricket or something like that, you know. So, how many hours a week were you putting in during your school years into football? Oh, every night, every night. So it could be from school, playing for a school team or a district team, North Tyneside or Northumberland, or then it could be going to Newcastle United Centre of Excellence in the evening. So it would be three or four evenings a night, every night, yeah. Three mm -hmm. or four evenings yeah. a night. And then obviously weekends. And what age did you realise or were informed or what is it? They, they like send scouts out to do Yeah, they? yeah, I think it's probably it was about when I was about eight or nine. It's yeah, when they start knocking on your parents' door. And, really? Yeah, yeah. It's that young? Yeah. I mean, at first it would be Newcastle United, then you would have scouts from, I don't know, Nottingham Forest, Tottenham, yeah. um, Arsenal, you know, because clubs down south would have scouts in the northeast because it's a bit of a hotbed for um, for football talent, the northeast. So, yeah, yeah. It, would be, it would be as early as eight or nine-year-old, but now wow. it could be five or six-year-old now. Really? Th these academies, these football academies now get kids in at five and six years old now. If you scouted that young then... How many of them actually make it? Um, it's difficult to put a number on it, but I was in, I was involved in a group of about, pff, it was about four or five of us in my age group made it. There's myself, Lee Clark, Steve Watson, Robbie Elliott, all from the same area of Newcastle, although Robbie wasn't. He was from a bit of a more posh end with a, with a better upbringing than us, Robbie. But um, we were lucky. We were all of that age that we all broke through to make it. And that's a bit freakish, bit like the Man United team of, of the early 90s were Beckham and Scholes and ne uh, the Neville brothers and Nicky Button stuff. So we were a bit of a freaky age group. So were you playing with them as a kid? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah playing with them as, as real young kids, especially Steve Watson. We went to school together from seven. So we grew up together. That, that must have created a really special bond between oh, yeah, you guys. Without it's unique, a doubt. isn't it? Yeah, and we're still close now. And I played for um, 
Newcastle with Steve Watson, then I eventually, later on down the line, I moved to Aston Villa and he ended up moving into the house next door. It was at Aston Villa, which is scary Yeah. when you grow up together from being six, seven-year-old to be then 24, 25-year-old men living in a house next door to each other in Birmingham. <laughs> and you used to do the same classes at school. It was mad. How was your family, like your parents and your siblings, reacting to your f football success? Um, very supportive. My mum and dad would always come and watch us play, whether at home or away. And that, that went on through my career, not just when I was a kid. That was all the way through. So they were always there. Um, they didn't miss, unless my dad was offshore on the rigs doing something like that and he couldn't make it. But no, nah, they're always, always there for us and um, very thankful for that. And when did like it start to change your life? Um probably about 10, 11, started going to watch Newcastle United and getting the buzz of watching your Kevin Keegans and these people and Peter Beersley and Chris Waddle, Terry McDermott, Paul Gascoigne. Um, when I started watching them, that was when I realised what I wanted to do. And then slightly older, 12, 13, you start going to Newcastle United. I went to Tottenham Hotspur, I went down to London to Chelsea as well. Um, so that was when I knew what I really, really wanted to do when I left school. Yeah, yeah. So Jamie sent some questions in here. Um, I suppose you made your name as a young footballer for Bolton Wanderers in the mid-90s. Did it take a while to get used to the fame? One minute you were just an average young kid, then the next you've got people coming up asking for pictures and autographs. <laughs> that must have been a trip. Um, yeah, well, I mean, I broke through at Newcastle first and played a few games there. It was tough at Newcastle because not many people will know, but I had a really bad car accident when I was 16 mm. and dislocated C4 and 5 in my neck, which needed surgery. Um, and it's just exactly the same injury that Christopher Reeve had, Superman, yeah. who not long ago passed away, and he, he spent the rest of his life in a wheelchair. So I was extremely lucky. So I've had hurdles to overcome in, in my early life as well as later life. So um, just just to even walk again, never mind go on and have a football career. I was I was very lucky and I felt very blessed to have done that. How did that accident come about? Um, it was on the A1 in, in Durham and I was on my way back from Leeds, 11 o'clock on a Wednesday night, being to watch a football match and the lad dozed off driving the car. Um, there was no lights on the motorway at the time. The car ended up on its roof. Um, there was five of us in the old style Mini, which was a bit cramped. And there was only four of us on, when the car ended up on its roof. There was only four of us in the car. So he fell asleep, then what happened? He, it was going towards a crash barrier, and it, he's, he's grabbed the wheel as he's just hitting the crash barrier, and he's turned the wheel, and then it's rolled. It rolled. And then when it eventually stopped, it was just a deafening silence, and there was only four of us in the car. So one of the guys, us three in the back, uh, seat belts weren't legal then, so we didn't have seat belts on. So one of the guys was missing. He'd been throughout the side window. Um, oh eventually God. when the police got there and ambulance got there they found him about 150 yards back under the centre reservation thankfully that he wasn't on the carriageway because who knows what could have happened so well, yeah, I was lucky for him So he was lucky for him lucky for us all but I could just I, I vaguely remember smelling the petrol and I had glass in my mouth and blood coming out my ears and just thinking I need to get out of this car because if it goes up and, and I remember getting out and a woman grabbed hold of me and laid me down and just remember waking up in the ambulance, cutting my clothes off. And So I had hurdles to overcome. At the time, it was a Wednesday night and I was meant to be playing for England youth team in Iceland on the Saturday. And I was asking the nurses, will I be fit to play on Saturday on Wednesday? And, no, I don't think so, son. So I was in the scanning machines, x-ray machines and everything for the next couple of days, which was petrifying for me and my parents. Newcastle United were great to me, they really looked after us. But I missed 18 years of my football education 
18 months of my football education, sorry, because it happened when I was 16. And it was I was I was nearly 18, 19 by the time I got back fit. So it was it was a long time that I missed and it was tough. But I eventually broke through into the Newcastle team, which was very I was very proud to have done, but didn't last very long at Newcastle. And that was when I moved to Bolton and started playing lots of games and as you touched on, getting recognised in the street and photographs and, and, and an autographs and stuff like that. But it's just a hurdle you've got to overcome and, and yeah. Just going back to the accident a minute then. So did it did you think like um, this could bugger my career up. Oh yeah, for the first couple of weeks, you, I was worried about that. For the first couple of weeks, it was touch and go whether I'd walk again. Um, when the doctors were talking to my parents and the doctors were talking to Newcastle United, the first surgeon I can't remember his name was at Dryburn Hospital in Durham where I first went. He said I can't do anything for the kid. He said basically, so Newcastle put me in touch with another surgeon in Newcastle called Derek Stainsby, Mister Stainsby, and he was prepared to perform an operation. He couldn't put any guarantees on me playing football again, but he said, I'm prepared to do this operation and it's a little bit of, a lot of risk involved in it, but it could get you back to, to where you want to be. And I had the operation in the January of 1991. The accident was in September 90. So it was a few months of absolute, you can imagine what's going through my head, absolute wobbles and will I play football again? What am I going to do if I haven't? Because as we've touched on, you know, I've got a GCSE or an, an O-level in pottery. That's that's not going to be enough if, if I'm not going to be able to play football again. So thankfully I got the operation in the January and, and, and got back to where I wanted to be. So, yeah, it was tough. And as a young person who'd been injured, were you aware of all the risks at that time of your life or were your parents kind of talking to the doctors and shielding you from it? No, I had to be a part of it. I had to be a part of it because we needed to make big decisions and... Um, I remember after I had the operation, there was a young boy in Newcastle who'd slipped in a, in a stream on a rock and he cracked his head and he had the same injuries and he was in a spinal unit in Newcastle. So they got in touch with me because my story was quite high profile because it was in newspapers because I was a young footballer and stuff like that. So his family got in touch and asked me if I'd go and visit him in hospital, which I obliged and I turned up and I kind of walked in and as soon as I walked in, he was, he was in bed and he was all strapped up and he didn't look good and... Mm. And I just, I panicked and I said to his parents, look, I'm not being rude. I, I, I can't do this, you know, because it was, and even talking, thinking about it now, it was, it was tough. I tried. I went to try and offer my um, positivity to the young kid in hospital. I think he was only about 14 himself. Yeah. Um, so I knew what lay ahead for him. And I just said to his parents, look, I'm not going to be able to stay. Mm. Shook their hands and, you know, patted the young boy on the, on the arm and just had to go because it was, it was too raw. Mm. You said your brain was wobbling during the early stage of the rehabilitation. At what point during the rehabilitation did you realise you were going to get through it and get back to back on track? Um, I'm not too sure, really. I, used, I had this big collar on right round my front. It was like a vest shape under my arms, up my chin and up the back of my head. Yeah. And uh, that was on for months. So you can imagine the smell and everything like that. And then once everything had settled down and they realised... The operation had worked. They kind of got me a half and half so I could take it off and have a shower. And looking in the shower and looking in the mirror and, you know, seeing this big scar down the back of my neck, it was like, shit, that's going to be there for the rest of my life type of thing. And it's not a small scar either. So, um, But once I started taking the brace off, having a shower and a bath and putting it back on and then started jogging eventually, I'm kind of, that's when I'm starting to get excited that there might be a possibility of getting back. So with that thing on your neck then, how was you able to sleep? Was that difficult? Yeah, it was difficult, yeah. And 
it was it was the smells that were coming off it and stuff like that. Off the wound, yeah. not off the wound, just off the the. It was, it, it was a plastic cast. It wasn't plaster cast. It was plastic. But yeah. you can just imagine for for first two months, I couldn't take it off and wash it. Oh. So the sweat and everything it, it affected oh. my skin. It affected my skin, but no. And then eventually, they, you could start taking it off for bed. But the first couple of months with it on, my nickname was RoboCop. All the boys <laughs> used to call me RoboCop because it was up my chin and up the back of my head and stuff. So it wasn't ideal, but eventually got there. Would you say then that you went through a psychological turning point from like the pits of worrying to, I, you know, this is turning around now. I appreciate, you know, I'm coming back. I'm get, I'm coming yeah, back. Yeah, well, it, well, it was it was bizarre really because. Um, when I eventually got through to playing first team football, if you want to call it that, at Newcastle and Bolton, I had a problem with vomiting before a game. It was well, I still think it was nerves, but um, Kevin Keegan at Newcastle didn't particularly like it, um, and then my manager at Bolton didn't particularly like it. So they sent me to see a psychologist at the Nuffield in Bolton. Mm. So I had a few sessions with him, where he'd kind of try and relax me and talk to me and stuff. And his conclusion after a few weeks was that I had a fear of getting injured again because of the, the severity of the neck injury. He thought the worry before a game might have been the worry of getting a, a bad leg break or a, or, a, or a bad knee injury or something like that. That was his conclusion, which I don't particularly agree with. I think it was down to just the nerves and the, the tension. And speaking to people over the years, I wasn't the only person who would vomit before a game and during the game. Mm. I would get some funny looks from opposition at half-time when we, for the second half go on the pitch and I'm stood there spewing up and they'd be looking over going, What's he doing? But it was just my way of dealing with yeah. you know, nerves and stuff like that. So, all right then. So you you get recognised in the street. People asking for pictures and autographs. As a young person, does that go to your head? No, I think it can with some people. But I I had good people around me. Um, I had older players who I was playing with. So as a young boy who was 19, 20, 21 at Bolton, they wouldn't allow it to go to your head. You'd, you'd get a slap. Um, anyone who seemed to be st- you know, stepping out of line as a young boy, buying flash cars and you know doing this and doing that, that you'd quickly get put in your place by the senior players, whether it be with a slap or a you know yeah. let your car tires down or something like that. So yeah, so they keep you grounded. Yeah, you weren't you weren't allowed to get big time. No, not at all. <laughs> not until you'd probably played a couple of hundred games. <laughs> Did you get people trying to attach themselves to you or trying to use you? Or like women trying to sleep with you, you know, make a name. You see all these stories that get sold, things like that. Yeah, no, I wasn't. I wasn't particularly good on the woman front, to be honest. But um, <laughs> that, that wasn't one of my strengths. Never, never has been. Whatever people have read in the newspapers, it's not one of my strengths. <laughs> but um, yeah, you, you you can get the odd, you know, Klingons as we used to call them, who wanna they wanna be seen with you in a pub or a restaurant or out and about. So you've just you've got to try and be a good judge of character and I think over the years I was I was a particularly good judge of character um in terms of who you surround yourself with involved in football and away from football because you spend a lot of time away from it as well so how would you identify and screen out a klingon um you kind of know you know if if they're ringing you often if they want to meet you often or the do you want to go for a bite eat often it's and it's particularly if you don't know them very well, you've you've only met them once or twice, and that you know, and they can latch on pretty quick, you know. So you you tend to know who your friends are and stick with a group that you've got. And I've always took that through through life to the present day as well. So those um, 
young people who you were playing with who rose up at the same time as you, were they your, always your friends yeah. over the years? Yeah, they're the ones you keep in touch with. Um, even when I moved away from Newcastle to Bolton, um, they'd, they'd, they'd be the ones, you know, they'd be the backbone of, of your friends. But still have friends from school, even now to this day, and I'm approaching 50 who I keep in touch with and see on a regular basis. So it, it's not just football friends, it's friends who you've known from, from a young age as well. So you sound very level-headed when it comes to the fame and the adulation. So let's talk about the money side of it then. So you went to Aston Villa for just under £5 million in the summer of 1998. I think the, we've got a lot of American audience. Um, it's $1.38 right now. So what's that? I think, it might, seven, I think it might have been one dollars. point. I think it might have been about 1.8 at the time, dollars to the pound. So almost, yeah. almost $10 million. I mean, does the money, does that... Those, those size figures destabilise you psychologically. I mean, they can affect you a little bit because because it was a huge leap from from playing for Bolton and my salary at Bolton to your salary at Villa. So it can affect you, but that's when you've got to try and trust the people who you employ to look after your funds. And um, I I thought I trusted the people who I was employing at the time, but then but then years later it comes to a, a head where my investments hadn't been particularly well looked after, not through any fault of my own. I was paid to play football and that's that's what I was good at, that's what I knew I was good at and that's what I enjoyed doing. You employ people to look after certain aspects of your finances and later on down the line, years later, little did I know what was coming but there was, there was a massive few problems that I had through bad investments mm. but not through any fault of my own, just bad advice and, and, and bad planning. Financial sharks. Yeah. All right then. So you see many young footballers getting sidetracked, uh, addicted to drugs, sex, fame, money, etc. What do you think was different about them to make them go down that path different from you? I think I think everyone's different. We've all got different genetics. We've all got different um, requirements in life, and a lot of the time, I do think it's it's about the people you surround yourself with. I think. If you're surrounding yourself with mates who take drugs, there's a good chance you could end up going down that route. Luckily, I've, I've none of my friends have been into that. Um, yes, don't get me wrong, we like to go and have a good drink now and again, um, but that's something that I've never surrounded myself with, um, thankfully. Um, gambling is something my dad always put me off at an early age. Um, my dad weren't a particularly big gambler, but I think my dad's dad was, my granddad Thompson. Um, he liked to gamble, so my dad seen what that could do to you. So I was kind of advised away from the gambling side. So I've always had good advice. And I just think if you surround yourself with people who will gamble, there's a good chance you're going to gamble. And, and the same with drugs. Um, sex, I'm not too sure about, but you might know more than that than me. <laughs> <laughs> so the other thing is then, people who might want to like make a name by having a fight with you in a pub. Do you ever get any, any idiots like that? Uh, yeah, you always get the few idiots, but, you know... If you've got Viv standing next to you, you're all right, aren't you? Do you know what I mean? I don't, I don't, I don't think you get anyone coming up. With, you know, do you want to fight Mr. Thompson? No, no, you can fight me, mate, though. No, but, no I, I, I tended to avoid stuff like that. I would kind of smell when there was going to be trouble and, ten, you know, leave, yeah. leave your drink and get out the way type yeah. of thing. So it's not something I've been bothered about um, over the years, if I'm brutally honest with you. So this this question then brings religion into it, which is, people think, well, religion? Football? What's going on here? So you arrived in Glasgow, and we've had many Glaswegians come on the podcast and, and, and tell us stories. Just shout out to Blink, Ian Blink-McDonald, Johnny Boy Steele, uh, 
And um, so it's quite a lively place, <laughs> Glasgow. <laughs> a lot of slashings going on. Um, you were playing for the Catholic side of the city, so the Catholics loved you. However, on the Protestant side, they did not love you. Was that hard to deal with? Um, again, it, it 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 boils down to you being an individual and and where you put yourself. Um, so the Catholic side being Celtic and the Protestant side being Rangers, um, it was it was tough, but it, it was I thrived on it and I kind of had a level head. If if an old firm game Celtic v Rangers, if we won. I'd probably still go out for dinner after the game, you know, because I wouldn't celebrate, but I'd go out and have a good night. And if we lost, I wouldn't bury my head in the sand and stay in the house either. I kind of realised if you're prepared to go out when you've won, you better be prepared to go out when you've lost as well. <laughs> um, so I didn't kind of, I wasn't one of those. I tried to keep a happy medium. I didn't get too high when when, when we beat Rangers and I didn't get too low when, when we didn't. So um, it's just trying to keep an even keel and, and you realise quickly what parts of Glasgow you can go and what parts you can't go because you could easily get pinned in the wrong corner and you don't want to do that. I'm finding it really intriguing about how balanced you are throughout everything you're doing in well, your life. I don't, I don't think I've always been balanced. I just think I've, I'm, I'm at a good stage now after yeah. having a tough time, really tough time for, for more than 10 years possibly. Yeah. Um, I just think I've, I've become more balanced in the last... Recently, six months, if I'm brutally honest, yeah, yeah. Do you get stressed out about things? Uh, yeah, I can do. I can do. Um, I've, yeah, you could. I'm a worrier. Yeah, I mm. do worry. Um, not just about myself. I worry about my kids, my family, um, people close to us. Um, so, yeah, I do get stressed a little bit at times. Yeah. And how did you find living in Glasgow? Loved it. Yeah, uh, it's 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 very much like Newcastle. Um, it's got its good areas and it's got its bad areas. Um, and obviously at the, at, the, at the time when I was in Glasgow, I had a decent salary and my family were there with me and I could live in a decent area. But that didn't go without the shit that comes with it because even though I lived in a decent area, Newton Men's, I had me problems. Um, whether it be with a certain Rangers player coming knocking on my door in the middle of the night on numerous occasions or whether it be people graffitiing in my house and, and jumping in my car and trying to go and find them type of thing, you know. So Why was the certain Rangers player knocking on your door in the middle of the night? There was a certain Rangers player who who now, God rest him, he's not longer with us, a guy called Fernando Ricks and he he was a, a direct opponent of mine on the pitch. So I play on the left, he plays on their right. So we clash a lot and we had proper Barneys if you want to put it at that. So he he liked to continue it away from the pitch to to where we lived. And he he knocked on my door once and uh, talked about it in depth in the book. And he's got his bull mastiff with him. And I ain't coming downstairs to see you on the, my front garden if you've got your bull mastiff, mate. Take your dog home and I'll come out and we'll we'll sort it out between ourselves. But I ain't coming down with that dog there. Um, and, you know, young kids graffitiing on the side of my house euphenian bastard and all that kind of stuff which it's just people find out where you live and it's it's not ideal but i, I actually caught the two young lads who had done it and i was driving around and they were in a shell garage took me about 15 20 minutes to catch them and they were in you know you get a car wash bay in a, in a garage where you jet wash your car they were in there and they put the money in and they were washing their hands and I pulled up, I had a Volkswagen Touareg at the time, pulled up and penned them in. <laughs> so as I jumped out of the car, there was a police car pulling on the forecourt. 
must have been like on a late night shift to go and get a coffee out the, the shell garage in Newton Men's. And um, I grabbed these two young lads and I shouted at the police. Well, they must have thought it was just three kids having a laugh. And I'm like saying, no, you need to come over. They've been graffiti in my house. So the police eventually come over and got these two young boys and got them in the car. And the police knew it was them. They had this silver spray paint on their hands, so the kids couldn't deny it. So um, the police said to me, look, what do you want to do? I said, well, look, they're obviously young. They're 14, 15, 16 at the eldest. So I said, just take them home to their parents type of thing. Lo and behold, about 20 minutes later, I get a, a buzz on the gates and it was one of the kids' parents coming to apologise and say, pay for it all to get removed or painted over and what have you. And I think the kid was in the bad books for what he was doing because his parents, he wasn't brought up that way, but that's Glasgow for you, you know? Yeah. 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 So um, you never went and did a visit to Balany Prison? No, no, I didn't want the kids getting, but I said to the parents. No, I mean, you, you, oh, me. you never, never went over oh, no, no, seen it. Oh, no, no, no. I went to where, uh, yeah. I went to Franklin once in, in Durham. Um, got asked to go into there to do a presentation in Franklin and Durham, yeah. There was a friend of mine whose brother was in there and they said, would you mind coming in, just doing, pre presenting some certificates to the, to the inmates? Yeah. Wow, so it was pretty scary stuff, you know, just getting a walk around and getting a tour of. Take, take us, take us through it. Like, what was it like going in? Security checks. Security checks. Um, what were the security checks? Oh, I can't remember. It was it was round about the time when I'd just come, getting back fit from from my neck injury. Um, I just remember going in there and um, and and getting a bit of a tour, and they took us round the cat cat ear part, and then. They had a, a women's cat here as well, and they were like, oh, she's paired up with her, and she's doing 35 years for an IRA bomb. And it was like, holy shit, this, <laughs> this really goes on. And it was kind of like another world, yeah. an eye-opener, really. So it was, it was a bit of an education to do that, because I guess not many people get the chance to get a tour of a of a you know high-security prison. Did you get to talk to any of the prisoners? Um, no, no. They did point one or two out. Um, and like you look in the cell type of thing and think, wow, that's just scary, you know. So, yeah, no, yeah. didn't really fancy talking to, to, to many of them, <laughs> I'm honest, but um, certainly not the cat is. Yeah. So, like, if you were asked to do like an inspirational talk in the prison, would you do something? Yeah, like I'd that? be happy to do something like that yeah, now. Go yeah. in and even if it was, a, I don't know, young offenders or something like that, just, yeah. you know, um, to give them advice on, you know, surrounding yourself for good people, you know, try and be positive and stuff. And yeah, without a doubt. Yeah, so before the pandemic, I went up to Scotland and Johnny Boy Steele showed me Balony Prison where he escaped from multiple times. Right. But I also went over to, um, I did a TED Talk north of Edinburgh and then I came back down to Edinburgh. Bloody Edinburgh is beautiful, isn't it? Yeah, awesome, great yeah. countryside. Up on the on that northeast coast from Newcastle up to Edinburgh, um, yeah. even beyond that, even further north. Um, yeah, some stunning places, yeah. We just yeah. don't get the weather. Yeah. yeah, if we got the weather, it would be one of the most beautiful places in the country. Yeah, um, one of my viewers actually gave me a tour of Edinburgh. I can't believe the history of it and yeah. the castle and everything. Yeah, yeah it's stunning Edinburgh. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the people who've been buried there as well, um, like famous um, people from history, have been buried in the cemeteries out there. Yeah, yeah. All right then. So on the subject then of blowback, your best mate Neil Lennon used to get bullets sent through the post because of his religion. So how how did Neil, you know, deal with that? Did you, oh, did you get any bullets? No, I didn't get bullets. I got uh I got some toilet paper with um 
hit on it once through the post, a couple of times through the post, which isn't particularly pleasant. Yeah. It's it's not as scary as a bullet. It's more the thought that someone's done that and put it in an envelope, you know, with mm. toilet paper hit on it. So yeah. um, not particularly nice. But yeah, Neil Neil suffered it quite badly. Then bullets through the post. He got told one night when he was when he was going to play for Northern Ireland if he goes on the pitch that night he would be shot. Um, from the top of my memory, I don't think he went on the pitch that night. I think he got shuffled out the country that afternoon. Did he? Yeah. Yeah, he got serious death threats, yeah. Yeah. So, I, so, yeah. so um, crime does overlap with football when you get to that level. Then. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. we um, we were in a bar. Um, I talk about it in the book. Um, I was in the bar having a pint with Neil in, in the West End of Glasgow and we got told four policemen come in plain clothed and put your pint down. There's two cars outside, you get in one car and you get in the other. Neil's life was in imminent danger. So that we got shuffled out of a pub and he was took to a free house and I was took to my apartment where I stayed. Um, but he was in danger and he had to, um, armed police outside his apartment for days, yeah. When things like that happen then for you and Neil, what about your wives and family members? Is, it, is there a ripple effect through you of you know worry and shock? Yeah, well, not, not so much for me because I don't think I was in the same boat. Um, but for Neil... Without a doubt, his parents living back home in Northern Ireland, his his brothers, sisters. Uh, I think he was the youngest of his brothers and sisters, so he's the little brother and he's getting death threats. So it's got to have a massive effect on your family without a shadow of a doubt, yeah. It's a shame. But I think it had an effect on us in the dressing room as well for him because we, we felt what he was going through and we were with him and, um, as they call it, the Celtic family, all the supporters and Celtic supporters around the world. I think they were all, all with him, but... Sometimes a lot of people thought it was justified because he'd put himself in positions, whether it was at certain pubs in, in the West End of Glasgow or whether it was social media. People thought he was putting himself on a bit of a pedestal, but death threats is pushing it a little bit, I think. Do you know any extreme examples of players who did get like attacked, you know, really savagely or murdered, perhaps? Um, Neil got attacked. Neil got attacked in the West End of Glasgow in um, Ashton Lane. Um, I think he got hit from behind and yeah I don't think many people were around at that time so you know it's not nice um I've had people approach me when I had a my youngest daughter Saffron was a baby I was in the center of Glasgow in the middle of the day pushing the pram and a white transit van jumps out and three kids come running over and I actually thought they were going to go for us but I just jumped in front of the buggy and kind of went lads you know what it's the middle of you know what what we doing yeah I'm pushing a buggy during the day you know so and I, I don't think they had the intention of attacking me, but I, they just had the intention of trying to intimidate me or, you know, yeah. That's a chicken shit. But it works. But anyone it, anyone going after you when you were, you know, around the woman or kids, that's Yeah, absolutely, shit, yeah. Isn't it? Yeah, it's poor. Yeah, but yeah. I think that it was either a, a bit of a joke or a bit of banter, but it didn't come across like that to me and, and my wife at the time. So how did Neil maintain his morale in the face of these threats and actually getting attacked? I think he, um, he suffered a little bit, Neil, with... Um, depression and, and anxiety even when he was younger when he was a player um, I've gone on to suffer that later on in life but he 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 had it all the way through if you know what I mean yeah. being especially going through those ordeals <clears throat> that he's that he's been through um, you can see why yeah so you played 26 games in the old firm derby which is known as one of the biggest in world football in those games you scored seven goals and had three red cards how would you describe being involved in that fixture? Oh, it's one of the best fixtures you'll ever ever been involved with. Um, 
whether it's you're going as a supporter and you've never been to that fixture before and it's your first ever one, it's it's a bit special. But for me, to play 26 all firm games and probably have more good results than bad results, even though I did have three red cards, um, not all justified in my opinion. Um, <coughs> Jamie Boyle says differently, but um, <laughs> don't listen to him. He's from the borough. Um, but uh, no, I had great days, great memories. And... Um, as I said, they're playing 26 of them. I'm really proud of that, yeah. Mm. What did they allege that you had done to get the red cards? Oh, one was a headbutt, um, which wasn't a headbutt. Um, you just fell. One of their players and, and myself really go close together and we barely touch. And as we barely touch, <clears throat> he hits the ground like a sack of spuds and the ref just <laughs> deems it as a headbutt, which is embarrassing. So, um, so some players like... Do amateur dramatics to, to get you a card. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It happens, yeah. It happened back then when I was playing and, and it happens now. So, you know, Cristiano Ronaldo had done it a few years ago to Wayne Rooney. So even at the top, top level, you know, two of the yeah. most famous players in the world, it, it happens with them because Ronaldo winked at the camera like that when he'd done it. So <laughs> as though to say, I've just got Wayne Rooney sent off. So it happens. It happens. And, and the, the lad Lovenkrantz who played for Rangers got me sent off that day as well. So, yeah. Did you get any into any um, verbal altercations with refs? Um, yeah, now and again, we. I think it was it was fairly um, it was popular back then. I don't think you can do that now. I think the rules have changed. It's more the captains who do it now. But back then, you could. Yeah, we used to surround them and maybe try and intimidate them a little bit. But um, looking back on it, it doesn't look good, um, and it's probably changed for the better in the modern game than what it was back then because you surround a referee now and you, you don't get away with it well you could get away with it back then what's the biggest audience you've ever played to um probably the old Wembley I think that was about 95 or 96,000 or I think the new camp in Barcelona I think that might be 105 so those would be the two biggest yeah so 100k people cheering how do you do you just get used to that or does it always electrify you? I, I, I thrived off it. Um not everybody does, some people freeze, but I kinda got a buzz off it. Um I might have found it more difficult going to some grounds if there's only five or six thousand in, you know, in a in a in a cup match or something like that. And not getting against, against the lower team, yeah. I'm not getting me, me buzz if you want. <laughs> so um no, I I love the big games and the, the, the pressure that, that, that come with it. Yeah. Mm. So is your adrenaline just going full tilt all throughout the game? Um, I think it's before the game. Before then, the game. Then I, then I think once the game starts, you just you manage it. You kind of you take over and something takes over in your brain that allows you to deal with it. Because I think if you're just 100 mile an hour, you can't relax. You can't look after the ball. You can't win your tackles. You can't win your challenges. You can't win you know, your passing. Can't you? So you've got to kind of be group you know steady and, and and look after it so you've got an adrenaline spike and then you go into a flow state yeah and you're on autopilot then your skills just yeah take over skills take over half time try and relax and then before the game starts again you've got to try and get that adrenaline pumping again for the to restart the game in the second half because you just had a 15 minute lull so yeah it's uh how long is the average game uh 90 minutes and how many of those minutes are you running around 94 of them. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. like, if I go jogging for an hour, yeah. for for about an hour after that, I'm, like, on this jogger's high, you know, yeah. my endorphins are still cascading. Yeah. Yeah. And then I crash. Yeah. 
is there a cycle for you? Do you whereby yeah, you're, you're I mean, on a high afterwards and then you crash? It's it's not too bad if you're playing an afternoon game if it's a three o'clock kickoff because you've got a lot of time after the game to come down and chill and eat and whatever you do. Um, but if you're playing an evening game, seven forty-five, eight forty-five, nine thirty finish. By the time you get home, it's eleven. By the time you've had something to eat, and then you just you cannot get to sleep. Because the adrenaline's gone. Really? Yeah. So you, you, you're you probably getting up in the morning to take the kids to school or something like that. Mm. And you'd, you'd be lucky if you've had two or three hours, like, you know. Ouch. Yeah. So it's like an afternoon in your kip, you know, after you, yeah, to try and catch up a bit. Yeah. Did you have a pre-game ritual? Yeah, always, always. What was that? Um, it would probably be about six or seven double espressos. <laughs> Which, you know, from really, really got you wired. Did you have to top that up at half time? Uh, no, I tried not to. Because um, I knew I knew I would, you know, got to get to sleep that night. So, <laughs> yeah, had a routine, same food, same drinks, you know, put my left boot on before my right foot, my left, uh, right boot, and left shin pad on before my right shin pad. So it was all very, very superstitious, yeah. Did you leave a space of time? of not eating so many hours before a game you couldn't eat yeah. I mean, did you eat certain foods on that day yeah you'd, you'd have your you'd have your pre-match meal three hours before kickoff, which was really difficult when you played Rangers because when you play Rangers they're normally about a midday kickoff. Mm. so your pre-match meal would be about nine o'clock in the morning or quarter to nine having your chicken and pasta at quarter <laughs> nine in the morning didn't really go so I didn't didn't like that early start yeah um I didn't mind the early kickoff, but my routine had to change. Mm. I had to try and do a bit of beans on toast or something like that because, <laughs> you know, I didn't fancy bringing chicken and, and, and pasta up at 12 o'clock on the pitch, you know. Did you become more conscious of what you were eating over the years? Yeah, yeah. I think when you're younger, you could, you could basically eat what you wanted and then the older you got, you had to be slightly more channeled, yeah. And what about alcohol intake? Did you only like celebrate, go out and celebrate after and abstain before? Um, if if we weren't playing on a Wednesday, we we would be off on Wednesday. So we we train on Tuesday, be off Wednesday. You might get a few of the boys going out on a Tuesday night and having a few beers, a few games of pool or a game of golf on Tuesday afternoon, then a few beers after golf because you were off on Wednesday. And then predominantly, if you were playing on a Saturday, you'd have a few beers after Saturday. But it wouldn't be a regular thing. It would be. Once or twice a week, you'd, you'd you'd enjoy a few drinks, yeah. So you see, boxers are like at their peak at, at a young age. Yeah. What's the average age a footballer peaks at? Probably about twenty-seven, twenty-eight. I would say twenty-seven, yeah. twenty-eight. Yeah. And were you conscious of that at the time? Yeah, you're conscious of it. Yeah. Um, I mean, some people might say now it might be thirty, thirty-one, um, but I think when I look at myself personally, I, I would say probably about twenty-eight was when I was at me physically best and, and mental best yeah yeah and how do you deal with the downslope side of it when you realize and then you've gone past your peak um it's tough it's tough um because i had so i mean the best years of my career were probably a couple of years at bolton and then and probably four or five years at celtic and then towards my last year celtic and then leaving celtic going to, to leeds united where i finished you realize you've gone a little bit um not mentally. Mentally, you're still there, but physically, it's it's caught up with you. And then don't forget, I've I've had a serious injury with my neck when I was 16, so that could have an adverse effect on back, uh, lower back. Um, so I, I 
it maybe caught up with me quicker than it does most. So I, I was about 32, 33 when I thought the end is nigh. And I eventually called it a day when I was 34, which is it's a tough thing to do. Um, but you've got to be true to yourself and true to the people who pay money to watch you as well. You know, I see a lot of people who do go on beyond the sell-by date. Um, but I, I knew when the time was up, I think. What indicated to you that your time was up specifically? I was picking up niggly little injuries that I wasn't picking up before that. And that becomes frustrating because you're not training, you're not on the pitch, you're in the gym, you're on a bike. And it, it just caught up with me. And psychologically, it's kind of like becomes harder not to not to be fit, not at your peak fitness. Um, and it affects you a bit mentally as well. So some people see, you know, the big money footballers make and think, well, you know, they, they quit when they're young, but they can just ride off that money for the rest of their lives. They're in yeah. the big house. It's so glamorous, you know, and um, a lot of the footballers are, you know, dating, you know, famous women or marrying famous women and stuff like that. Did you have an exit plan? Um, I did. I was, I was fairly comfortable and... Um, it was it was only when I finished playing, started coaching at Newcastle United, I got wind that there might be a, a problem with um, HMRC with some of the previous investments that had been done in years prior when I was at Villa and um, early days at Celtic. And they did the comeback to haunt me. Had a, and not the only one. I have close friends. I'm not going to name them who 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 are in same position as me, being Premier League footballers, and um, a lot of them went into these schemes that we were advised to do and come back to haunt me. So had a, a build up to that for about four or five years before it coming to a head where it was, that was when a bit anxiety set in, a bit of depression set in because I knew what was coming. And then at, at the end of that, when it all settled down, you know, you end up going bankrupt, which I never envisaged. That wasn't part of my plan. I didn't see that coming. It was sprung upon me, not through any fault of my own, through bad investments, um, through certain people. Um, so it was tough. So I, I did play with people when I played who suffered depression and anxiety. We've mentioned Neil, um, amongst others, but mine didn't set in till after after I played. The worry of what could happen if I go bankrupt, um, what could happen if I don't get another job, stuff like that. So there's been a lot of hurdles to overcome um, over the last eight, nine, ten years. Bankruptcy. I've been through a divorce. Um, being un unemployed, lost my job at Celtic, which was made public, newspapers, stuff like that. Um, so there's been a lot of hurdles um, only in the last few months do I feel like I'm coming through and starting to feel more like myself. Um, you know, a lot of people around me who've been strong rocks for me um, that I, I couldn't have got through without them. I think, you know, even to the point of the darkest days where, you know, you've thought about ending it all. Um which is a horrible place to be. And I don't want to get back in that place, but it's only because of the, the hurdles I've had to overcome, the bankruptcy, the divorce, um, being unemployed, um, the pandemic set in and a lot of work stopped for me because I was doing a bit of work before that in terms of question and answers and stuff like that, which I enjoyed getting out and about, meeting people and talking to people. Um, it's only the last probably four, five, six months where I've started feeling more like myself. Mm. So it's often thoughts of the family members left behind that prevent people from killing themselves. What got you through your period of suicidal thoughts? Um, I've had friends who've who've done that and seen the aftermath that they've, they've left. Killed themselves. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, were they in, in the profession you were in? Um, one was. One was very high profile. Um, Ex-Leeds United, Newcastle United, um, Wales. His his two boys are, are friendly with my son, so I see in the aftermath that, that, that it left. And I wasn't... I just as much as I thought about it, no, I couldn't couldn't get my head around doing it. But and then a close friend who was who was in the financial game, boy from Scotland, seen what he left with his wife and his daughter. So as much as you think about it, um, it's got it's it it can't be that bad. And 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 I spoke to a lot of people about it. Um, been going through some counsel in the last six months, which has been a massive massive help. Through a company called Sport and Chance, who an ex-footballer Tony Adams set up, so that's been a huge help to me to talk to people, and and I just think people who, who are out there who who don't talk about it, suicide, anxiety, depression, it makes a massive difference if you if you actually say it. I, I class myself as a car now, and and it's a bit like maintenance. So if you run a car and you don't put fuel on it or oil in it, or if there's a tire that's damaged and you don't replace that car, something's gonna go. So I just think we're a bit like that in humans. If, if if you've got a problem and you don't fix it, something's gonna blow. So that's that's my kind of analogy now of 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 myself. I need to maintain myself now. So whether that's going having a game of golf, ringing someone up, or sitting down talking to someone really close to me, whether it's my partner now, or or a close friend, it it, it helps massively. Mm -hmm. So suicide is now a leading cause of death of young men in this country. What do you say to people watching this video, perhaps, who are going through things? I played in a charity event in Liverpool, actually, where we are today, about seven weeks ago, and it was it was mental health awareness. And I spoke to a lot of people that day about suicide, and it's it's not that bad. Nothing nothing in the world can be that bad, whether it's whether you haven't got a penny left, um, whether you, you don't speak to your family, um, there's always someone there to talk to, whether it's the the companies there who you can the Samaritans or whoever it is, there's always someone there to help you and you must have one person who you can talk to. Um don't think you're on your own. Um be honest and, and think of the people who who you leave behind and it's not nice. So the football player who did kill himself, who you said he left his sons behind, were there any warning signs of him or what did he keep did he hide it all? No, I knew a, a close friend who was with him the afternoon of when he done it. it, it I think it was all just internal, and yeah. and when it happened, the, it was all why, 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 you know. He had the perfect wife, children, house, financially stable, stable job. It's just something, and and that was the friend, of my, my friend from Scotland as well. He had the perfect wife, perfect daughter, had his own company, very successful. It was just something in there that didn't allow him to carry on and. Can't be that bad. I wish you'd have told me, you know. I think because mm. we're in a culture of men being brought up to hold everything in and be macho. Yeah, well, uh, I, 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 I wouldn't, I wouldn't have spoke about it. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't have spoke about it. I've bottled stuff up, and I just think when you bottle stuff up, some, something, something's not gonna. It doesn't go smoothly. Um, and I just think if you've got the to be brave, you've got to be brave and true to yourself and and true to other people surrounding you, because. I think other people around you can see the warning signs more than you can yourself. Um, I had a few people approach me and close friends over the last five or six years saying, "Do you not think you should talk to someone?" And at the time, it wasn't it wasn't the way I was brought up to talk to people about problems. And I think that's men in general. But now, having been through what I've been through and spoke to my counsellor John, 
on a regular basis for an hour at a time, you know, you have to talk because if you don't, it can go pear-shaped and that's the last thing you want. Yeah, I've had therapy. I, I did click with a really good therapist and it helped me tremendously. I, I still lean back on what you taught me to this day. Yeah, so. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I think it's if you can take the lessons from that, if you talk to someone who's either been through it themselves or the professional who you're talking to, you can, you can relay that onto other people as well. So looking back on your life and career then, any regrets? Um, no, not regrets really, if if I'm honest. Um, no, I think if you look back and regret things, it'll it'll just tie you in knots. Um, I think if you look back and regret things, you can't. I can't influence what's happened in the past. The only thing I can influence now, myself, Alan, is is what can go on in the future and what what can I affect going forwards. Whether that's seeing my kids grow up and become parents, seeing my own grandkids and stuff like that, or me getting back to work, me being positive, me being smiling every day and. Mm-hmm. I love a laugh and I love a joke and I think that's part of life and that's a lot that gets us through is, is laughing and joking. So you've travelled the world and rubbed shoulders with some celebrities. Was there ever a point in time when you met a celebrity and you were starstruck? It's a funny story, actually. Um, I've been to a Newcastle match and we went back to um, the Diamond Pub. That's where all the, all the lads would congregate after the match back at the Diamond Pub. And I ends up talking to this guy at the bar and I recognised him, but I couldn't place where from. So I'm talking away to him, and he's talking to me in a Geordie accent. Anyone who doesn't know Geordie accents, if you're from Newcastle. And he said, oh, I used to love watching you and Lee Clark and Stevie Watson and Robbie Elliott when you were young lads playing for Newcastle. And I was like, I recognise him, but I couldn't put my finger on where from. So finished chatting to him and that, and we'd, we'd had a pint. And I got talking to someone of the lads and that, and... This lad, Trenchy's no longer with us. I said, Trenchy, the lad I'm talking to there, I went, who that? He went, oh, it's Jonna. I said, who's Jonna? He went, Brian Johnson from ACDC. <laughs> and I went, that's it. And I recognised him from the TV programme, Top Gear, because he used to go on Top Gear with Jeremy Clarkson quite a bit. <laughs> so I kind of went home or the next day and Googled Brian Johnson, ACDC, <laughs> and realised I'd been talking to one of the most famous <laughs> rock stars in the world and hadn't noticed and then a few years later, I get to play golf with him at Close House Golf Club in Newcastle, actually play golf with him. And I'd been Googling him and kind of got into the ACDC music and knew how famous he was. So the first time I met him, I didn't really know who he was. And the second time I met him and played golf with him, I was starstruck like you wouldn't believe because I knew he wasn't just like famous in Europe or famous in America. He was famous around the world. So, and, 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 as it happened, he was just such a nice bloke and just a down-to-earth Geordie, a bit like myself. He liked his cars, he liked his music, and and just uh, he liked the paint. And uh, yeah, he, he would probably be the most famous. Or the yeah, I was starstruck the second time I met him, not the first. <laughs> <laughs> Any other really famous ones? Um, oh, yeah, Oscar De La Hoya. I met Oscar De La Hoya in the Lowry Hotel. Um, the, the Anthony Crawler was fighting and I was going to the fight at the MEN Arena. So um, he was in the hotel bar before the gate, uh, before the fight and uh, he was staying there and I was staying there at the time. So I don't like asking famous people for photographs. But that night Oscar De La Hoya was there and Noel Gallagher was there from Oasis as well. So 
That was quite bizarre. Noel Gallagher come over and made me mate and said, Lee, Alan, is it okay if I sit and have a drink with you? And, <laughs> and it was like Noel Gallagher like knew my name and he knew Lee Clark's name, which was like weird. But yeah, so I got my photo took with Noel that night and, and Oscar De La Hoya. So because I thought I can't not get my photo took with Oscar De La Hoya. Yeah. <laughs> Who was the best player you ever came across? Um, the the best probably Ronaldinho. Brazilian who played for Barcelona, he'd, he'd be up there. Um, but there's so many to mention. You know, Eric Cantona from Man United, Cristiano Ronaldo, Man United, Steven Gerrard, Liverpool. Uh, oh, I've played against some world class players, so been blessed to be on a pitch with some of those people, yeah. And um, what do you do these days, Tomo? Um, I don't, I don't work at the moment. I'd like to get back into football in some capacity, whether that be scouting, whether it be coaching, whether it be uh, recruitment, anything really. So um, I love playing golf, although I've not played for the last seven weeks because I hurt my shoulder playing football in that charity event. So I need to try and get back on the golf course. That that gives me a bit of therapy for four hours, switch my phone off, no emails, no texts, oh. no, no social media. It's, it's like it's, it's like no yeah it's four hours of bliss on the golf course so yeah. I do enjoy the golf I get out and walk the dog um, I like getting to see my kids when I can so yeah and just moving forward just trying to be positive Jamie sent this big long question in so bear with me there's a chapter in your new book which Jamie Boyle named The Dog Days Are Over which is the title of the song by Florence and the Machines are you sure now, for what lays ahead, that the darkness of depression is well rid and you'll now only look forward to life? Yeah, definitely going to look forward and be positive. I mean, you, you, you can't say that you're not going to have bad days because I think everyone has bad days, even people who, who don't suffer with depression or anxiety. So yeah. I think there is going to be days where, you, where you're down. Um, so it's it's just dealing with it and, and, and how you deal with it and... Um, as I said, I think a lot, a, a lot of people. If you surround yourself with good people, you're a good person yourself. So that's that's what I try to do now, and, and, and just as I said about the car, try and maintain it and keep keep it you know smooth, keep it moving smoothly, and and, and just be positive in, in everything you do, and, and hopefully work will come. Um, whether that's going into prisons to try and help people, or whether that's um, going into schools to talk to people, you know, I'm I'm I'm. I could do anything really. I'm looking looking to do anything. How do you stay fit these days during the pandemic? Um I I was doing a lot of walking. I was um I, I don't particularly enjoy running anymore. Um the ankles swell up and the knees ache. So uh cycling, done a bit of cycling, not for a while have I cycled, but I was walking oh, I was doing sometimes 80, 90 miles a week during the lockdown, so really enjoyed that. Mm. So if people want to reach out to you then for advice or business inquiries. Do you have like a website or anything? Um, no, I've got Instagram and Twitter, which is at Alan Tomo Eight. Um, so I follow people back, and people can direct message me. And yeah, I'm, I've been quite open. I've, not, I've I've only just started social media last March, when the when the when the coronavirus actually when it kicked in the lockdown. So I'm fairly new to it. I'm fairly naive, but um, I have engaged over the last 18, 16, 18 months with people both. Mainly on Twitter. I haven't quite got the grips with Instagram yet, but um, no, I've I've had people send me strips, photographs, and and posted them back to them. So 
I am available and I do get back to people when I can, yeah. What's an average day like for you now? Um, I like to lie in, not not too long, but I'll get up, um, try and get out in the afternoon with a dog and then my missus works, so um, I try and do most most cooking most days so when she comes in from work she doesn't have to cook so that'll be my um job for today get back get something prepared for a for a nice evening meal i do like cooking nice food and 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 eating healthy most of the time mm. absolutely fascinating man just to hear you go from you know here all the way up here yeah and then come to here and get through these dark days of depression yeah and you just come across as so level-headed and, and, and grounded. It's like, even from childhood, it's like you had this innate sense. Yeah. Um, I might come across as that. I think people close to me might might say different. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not going to say I'm perfect because I'm not. We've all got our faults. Um, if I'm tired, I can be grumpy. If I'm hungry, I can be hangry. Um, I've got a temper when I sometimes, you know, it's not going my way. Um to get to that level of success, though, and not go off the rails, yeah, that's commendable. Yeah. No, no, listen, I've been off the rails. There's been periods in my life where um, probably abused alcohol a little bit too much at times, but, you know, I've, I've kind of tried to get that in order. Luckily, drugs has never been a part of my life. Um, but people like to yeah. shove coke in your nose when you're out and about. Listen, I've had rumours... Even in the early days when I was at Bolton Wanderers, I took cocaine. When I was at Aston Villa, I took cocaine. And the amount of times at Celtic, I got accused of taking cocaine. And and there's one thing: um, if I never see my three kids again, it's something I've never done and never planned to do. So, yeah, yeah. Nah, but it's it's just it's the image people perceive. They see you out and about around the town. You're having a laugh. You're with good company. You know, oh, they must be on something. Well, no, sorry, not, no. But might like a drink and a odd cigarette. But that's it. So you're excited about the publication of your book? Um, to be honest, I am now. Now that it's nearing, or it, I think it just about is, be completed today or tomorrow, he'll, he'll, he'll finish it. So um, I am excited, but I did have a few wobbles during it where I was thinking, you know, I'm telling people stuff about me that they don't know here, and it's going out there for people to, to read. Hopefully lots and lots of people read it. Hopefully, hopefully lots of people get some help from it as well as yeah. getting some enjoyment from the stories that are in it. The good days, the bad days, and, and the dark days, and yeah. even if it helps people talk, like you know, this podcast today might help people, you know, open up about the problems they've got. So, I am looking forward to it. But during the I don't know last six seven months, Jamie has been doing it. He'll tell you, and his his wife Shirley, um, thinking about you, Shirley. By the way, um, thanks for the incarceration. Yeah, thanks for <laughs> thanks for letting me move into your house for a week, even though Jamie done me head in. <laughs> Trying to feed us those chicken pomos, do you and me? Um, no, but uh, they'll tell you I have had a few wobbles about it, a bit apprehension and stuff. But no, I'm, I'm quite excited about it now and um, looking forward to it, yeah. Yeah, it's been great speaking to you. Um, to go what you've been through, you know, that whole cycle, I find that really interesting because you're so normal. Yeah, well, it's I, like you've really got your yeah, ego in I, check. I, I, think, I think you were a bit reluctant, weren't you? Because you're thinking, I don't know anything about football. Oh, yeah, when Jamie, and, when Jamie and, caught, and contacted and I'm, me. And I'm, I'm not prepared to just sit down and talk about football. I mean, the first thing I said when I, because I'd never met Jamie before, only spoke to him on the phone. The first time I met Jamie was when I moved into his house for the week when we recorded, when he'd done the recording for the book. Yeah, yeah. And the first thing I said to Jamie was, I don't want this book to just be about football, football, football. 
I want it to be about. Obviously, of course, it's got a touch on football. That's yeah. that's where you know, that's where I earned me living. But I wanted it to be about life in general before, during, and after football. So there is a lot of football stuff in there, but not just football. Yeah, when Jamie contacted me, he said, "Do you want to interview Alan Thompson, Tom Oda, footballer who was in England?" And you're like, "Who?" I he? I, no, no, no. I said, um, "What prison was he in?" <laughs> <laughs> and he said, "He's not been to prison." So what, 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 what crimes did he do? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's um, I like a challenge. And interviewing you has been an absolute delight. You, you've got such a good vibe about you. Yeah. It's been a very inspirational story. Yeah. Um, your, your, your ego's completely in check. And, you know, anyone who's, who, who rose that high up, you, you think there would be some traits of egotism there. But I'm sure the people watching this um, have warmed to you as I have. Just, just, just meeting you, just downstairs meeting you right away. Yeah. The good, the good no, vibe. No, thanks, thanks for having yeah, me on. Thanks yeah, for having yeah, me. Yeah. Enjoyed it. And... Um, I wish you much success going forward. So what we'll do is, um, for the people watching this then, please let me know what you thought of the video. Like I said, this is our first footballer. We're looking to branch out on the podcast and interview people from other walks of life. Not not just true crime, not just people who've been arrested and <laughs> done, done crazy stuff. So let us know what you think about that. And if you have got guest suggestions from other walks of life put them in the comments we'll send them over to ash as ash is asking um please keep sending in your guest suggestions hopefully the book will be published tomo's book will be published and we'll have the links in the description box below the video for that and we'll also put you, you said you're down on you're on instagram now and what was the other one uh twitter so we'll ha also have tomo's links for his instagram and his twitter down there as well and we'll also have Jamie Boyle's link. So please support what he's doing. He's got loads of content on his YouTube channel, Warcry Publishing. If you're interested in Lee Duffy, Viv Graham, there's just tons and tons of stories down there for people who knew Lee and, and Viv. And, you know, it's just fascinating, um, both of their, their lives. And Jamie also has his Lee Duffy documentary on Amazon as well. So... Please support the work that Jamie's doing. He did arrange for us the uh, Jack the Ripper tour and the Craze tour. Um, hopefully in London, hopefully they'll, they'll be uh, online right now as well. So is there anything, Tomo, you would like to say in conclusion to the people watching this then? No, just thanks for having me on. Um, yeah. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, sorry I haven't committed any crimes yet. Um, <laughs> um, so uh, no. If you, if you enjoyed the uh, chat that I've had with Sean, then please buy the book and uh, hopefully get something out of it. Appreciate it. So, Thanks. huge thank you to the new subscribers. Um, subscription logo's in the corner of the screen. Let us know in the comments what you thought of this. We usually end our podcast with a hug, but because the the thing is going around the world is um, spreading quite virulently right now, we're abiding by social distancing guidelines in the studio. But we look forward to reading your comments on this. So take care. Thanks for watching. Cheers. And thanks most of all to Tom for coming in. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for having yeah. us. Thanks.